1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you today and we want to come with humble hearts. We want to come with humble hearts so that we place ourselves underneath your word and not above it. So that we can receive what you say to us this morning through your word and be transformed. I pray the prayer that Jesus prayed, and this is a good prayer, I believe. Father, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. Of course, it was 246, 45 years ago today, right? 245 years ago today that some of our founding fathers finished and signed the Declaration of Independence. And following that, we entered into a war for independence, a war for freedom. One of the founding fathers that is often overlooked or forgotten, or I think has been forgotten, is a guy named Patrick Henry. Anyone heard of Patrick Henry? Okay. Patrick Henry was hugely influential at the time. He was the one who famously said, give me liberty or give me death. Right? I think he also said, maybe in that same speech or another speech, he said something like, it's better to, to die standing on the battlefield than to live on your knees. He was a man who loved freedom and was not afraid to fight for it. Well, this is not a, this is not a, a message or a passage about um, how we as American Christians ought to fight for our civil liberties or fight for the American way of life or anything like that, but it is a passage that calls Christians to fight. We're in the first letter of, uh, that Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy. In the opening verses, Paul gave a strong command to Timothy to charge certain men who were teaching unorthodox, false doctrine to stop it. The teaching Paul described, he's described it as different doctrine or st- strange doctrine. And he he described it as these men were devoted to endless genealogies and myths, mythology, make-believe, stories, fiction. And the effect of this teaching was that speculations were being promoted rather than sound truth, which is what we need. In our text this morning, Paul comes back to this charge. So that was in the first seven verses. Then Paul digresses and talks about the goodness of the law and the purpose of Christ coming into the world to save sinners. And then he comes back in verse 18 to that initial charge. Still on the forefront of Paul's mind is that Timothy, is is what Timothy needs to do to deal with these false teachers who are causing trouble in the church at Ephesus. We see this beginning in verse 18 when Paul says, this charge I entrust to you Timothy, my child. Timothy was like a, was a son to him, a spiritual son to him. And the charge refers back to what Paul said in verse 3 when he said, charge certain persons not to teach 
strange doctrine or devote themselves to endless genealogies and myths. Timothy was facing serious opposition, serious trouble, and Paul was urging him to be strong. He was urging Timothy to not be a wimp. Now, of course, this had specific relevance to Timothy. He was a young pastor. He was dealing with significant problems in the church that he was serving in. But Timothy was also a young man who had a propensity to be timid and to shy away from his responsibility and duty to do what was right. We see that, we'll, we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Maybe remember that passage where Paul says to Timothy, stir up or fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. So Timothy was someone given to timidity, to fear, and he needed this pep talk. That's kind of a weak way to put it, maybe, but he needed this, this straight talk from his spiritual father, Paul. But this certainly is not written just for Timothy. It's also written for us. There's tremendous relevance for us today. We, too, need this exhortation from the Spirit And so I want to draw out three things from this passage. The first thing I want to draw out is the command to fight. I wonder if that sounds strange to you as a Christian, that we are commanded to fight. The second thing I want to draw out is the command to fight in a certain manner. And the third thing is a warning if we don't or won't fight. So first, a command to fight. Faithful Christians fight. Okay? Faithful Christians are soldiers. That's the main point of these verses. I think it was uh, Cotton Mathers, who was, a, who was a pastor in the early colonial time here in America, who said, for the faithful, wars never cease. For the faithful, Wars never cease. Now, I don't think he meant it goes on forever and ever and ever, but in this life, for the faithful, wars never cease. We see the primary imperative or command at the end of verse 18 when Paul says to Timothy, his son in the faith, he says, wage the good warfare. Or maybe your your translation says, fight the good fight. Paul reminded Timothy of prophecies that were spoken over him when people prayed over him. Elders prayed over over Timothy and commissioned him for ministry and spoke powerful words of prophecies over him. And Paul says, Timothy, in accordance with these prophecies and your calling, wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. This is a call to arms. It's a call to be a soldier. I love the opening line or the opening stanza of an old song. I think it was adopted by the Salvation Army, William Booth. It's um, Onward Christian Soldier. Anyone know that song? The opening line says, Onward Christian Soldier, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. The word translated wage here, or maybe your translation says, I think the NIV and New American Standard says fight. 
is a verb that means to serve as a soldier. That's literally what it means, to serve as a soldier. Now think about Timothy. Timothy was a pastor, kind of like me. I wonder if this was a paradigm shift for Timothy. Timothy might have said, wait a second, I'm not a soldier, I'm just a pastor, right? Maybe it's a paradigm shift for you to serve as a soldier of Christ. This was Paul's exhortation to Timothy. And, and, and Timothy was not to consider himself a soldier on standby that maybe someday he would serve, maybe he would never serve, he's on standby. No, Timothy was to see himself as an active soldier on duty. The word warfare carries with it the sense of armed conflict. It's the Greek word stratia. Sounds like strategy. It's where we get our word for strategy. It means a military campaign or an expedition. Paul wants Timothy to know that the opposition he's facing and experiencing right in front of him is where he is to engage in the battle. Sometimes we're looking for warfare somewhere else and we don't see it right in front of us. We're thinking, for, we're thinking of this huge thing that we want to get involved in, like this global warfare thing we want to get involved with, and we don't see it right there in front of us, in our own homes, in our own hearts, in our own congregation. I love the way that um, the Holman, Standard, Holman Christian Standard Bible says it. It says, strongly engaged in the battle. Which battle? The one you're facing right now. And do it as a Christian soldier, as a soldier of Christ. The faithful Christian is called to fight. And think about it. We're called to fight in the greatest conflict known to man. This is not a conflict that just includes a couple of nations or 10 nations or 20 nations or an entire continent or half the world. This is a conflict that spans to every corner of the globe. And it's not a conflict that lasts for four years or four decades or even four centuries. This is a conflict that started in the garden at the fall and will continue until Christ returns. Remember when, remember when God said to, 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 to the serpent that, you're, that um, uh, he said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And that enmity has continued since then. This is a conflict that has impacted every nation, every people group, every single person on the planet, and it's a conflict with eternal consequences. This is the conflict of the ages. This is, I think, why Paul calls it the good warfare. This is a noble fight to take up. Amen? This is an excellent warfare to engage in. If you're going to be a fighter, okay, and I'm not encouraging being a brawler or just being argumentative, but if we're called to fight, we want to fight in a good fight. I remember visiting with a friend who was an army ranger called to serve in a place where American soldiers were serving and we were, we, were, we were coming alongside one side in this conflict between two countries that were right next to each other and my friend said, 
the side that we were on, they weren't necessarily the good guys. And it was hard for him to understand why we were in this conflict. It shouldn't be hard for us to understand why we're in this conflict that we're called to. This is a good warfare. This is a good fight. Which means that a Christian not engaged in the conflict is in danger of defecting to the other side. Right? If that's you, if you're wondering, ah, this seems foreign to me, if that's you, then I urge you today to run to Christ and bow your knee to his lordship and say, Lord, put me in the battle. Now, this idea of being a soldier fighting in a war is a theme we see throughout the New Testament, certainly throughout Paul's writings. Of course, the great passage on spiritual warfare and the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Christians are called to wrestle, to fight, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he said in chapter 2, verse, verses 3 and 4, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service gets entangled in civilian pursuits because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, uses the same language as our text here today. And I think it's so helpful for us to understand where the battlefront is and what the rules of engagement are. Here's what it says. For though we walk according to the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Isn't that amazing? So we're not talking about guns and bombs and drones here. This has divine power to, de to destroy demonic strongholds. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We don't fight with guns, swords, bombs, and drones, okay? So when I call you to be a soldier, to fight, of course, I'm not talking about that. We fight in the arena of ideas. We fight with the truth the fight is a fight for truth against lies it's a fight against opinions raised against the knowledge of god it's a fight between the forces of satan who's called the father of lies the deceiver of the whole world and we know that satan even can masquerade as an angel of light and this is probably why Paul, why Paul said in, later in this book, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says that some will depart from the faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Once they appeared to be in the faith and they depart from the faith and get engaged in other things, deceitful spirits, 
doctrines of demons. George Orwell, who uh, wrote 1984, Animal House, he was not a Christian, not even close, but he said something, I think, very insightful. I think he said this. I think he's, he's attributed with saying this. I've, heard some, I've read somewhere he didn't say this, but I'm just gonna attribute it to him, okay? He said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. We live in a time of universal deceit. And we are to be people of the truth. We live in a time when up is down and good is evil and a man can be a woman and vice versa. And we're called to fight with truth to destroy strongholds, to destroy lies. So Christians are commanded to fight. We are to be soldiers engaged in the conflict. But it matters how we fight. It it matters that we fight in a good way. It matters that we fight well. So how do we fight? Paul has two things in mind that he draws out. And I I think it's interesting. Paul does not say, hey, go out there and fight all the evil in the world. Just take it on. Now, don't get me wrong. Christ does want us to impact the world for his glory. But the fight starts closer to home. In order to have an impact on the world, we need to hold on to two things. We need to fight well in two ways. By holding on to two things, we need to hold on to faith and we need to hold on to a good conscience. You guys see that? Verse 19, at the end of verse 18 and into verse 19, Paul says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. We need to fight while keeping or holding on to or possessing or clinging to faith and a good conscience. I think John Stott was right when he concluded that this command includes something objective and something subjective. Stott said that when Paul told Timothy to hold faith, he meant to hold on to the faith or the the body of truth that we have received in revelation from God. The scriptures, hold faith, hold the faith, objective truth. Right? Not your truth or my truth or Oprah's truth or somebody else's truth. We're to hold to faith, the faith, the once for all delivered faith that's been given to the saints. And Stott then also said, John Stott also said that when Paul told Timothy to hold a good conscience, he meant that Paul, he said he was telling Timothy to live before God in such a way that you have a clear conscience before him. Obedient. And of course, that's more subjective and experiential. We all know what it's like to have our conscience prick us, don't we? To hurt because we have dishonored Christ or we have, we have abused somebody with our speech, perhaps. So we're to hold on to faith or we're to hold to the faith. To fight well as Christians, we need to be growing in our grasp of 
truth. Uh, that's like a non-negotiable. To be fighting well as Christians, we need to be growing in our understanding of the faith that has been given to us in the scriptures. Ignorance is not bliss in the, on the battlefield. It's not. We want to fight armed with truth. In the book of Jude, the author by the same name said he wanted to write to the, peop- the recipients of his letter about their common salvation, but he felt this urgency to appeal to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he says this, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. Why do we contend for the faith? Because there are people who creep in that have other ideas. If the fight we are to engage in is a fight for the light of truth against the darkness of lies, Truth against false teaching, truth against false ideologies about God and man and the world and so forth, then we need to have a growing hold on the faith, on the truth. I hope you're, I hope you're reading through the New Testament along with many of us this summer. It's a good place to start. Maybe some of you is like, I just don't even know where to start when it comes to it's a big book and there's some things that are hard to understand. I get it. Start somewhere, right? Start somewhere. Fill your mind and your heart with God's truth, but it's not just an intellectual grasp of truth. It's not just so that your head gets bigger. It's not just so that you and I can have all of our doctrinal ducks in a row, but we want to hold to the truth in such a way that we are convinced by it. We are gripped by it. We have a love for it. We stake our lives on it. Hebrews chapter three, verse 14 says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That we hold on to the truth like that. Right, holding, possessing, gripping it tightly, not letting it go. Because it's gripped us. We're to grasp tightly and confidently to the truth of our faith. We're also to hold on to a good conscience. For Paul, this was a non-negotiable. Having a good conscience before God and before men, for Paul, was a huge priority. When our moral compass is not pointing north, right, the the needle, when it's not pointing north, the battle will soon be lost, and if it's not corrected, we may be in danger of complete shipwreck and exclusion from the kingdom of God. A good conscience is imperative. Listen to what Paul says. In 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul, Paul said, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Acts chapter 24, verse 16, Paul is standing before Felix, the governor of Caesarea, Listen to what Paul says. I I was challenged by this. Paul said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and men. I always take pains. Now, what is this talking about? Obviously, it's not talking about sinless perfection. 
But it's also not talking about being careless and, and loose in regard to sin and then just claiming that we're clean in Christ. Paul said, I take pains. I always take pains. Maybe I could explain it this way. I want to I just kind of give you a parallel thought from Scripture that I think might help us understand this. In John 15, we are told to abide in Christ. But if you read John 15, it becomes very, very obvious that the only people who can abide in Christ are those who are already in him. Right? To abide in Christ means to remain in him. So you can only remain in him if you're already in him. I think in a similar way, the only people who can hold or keep a good conscience are those who have received a clean conscience through the one sacrifice of Christ. If Ethan would have just gone one verse prior to he- in Hebrews 9, he would have read this. Hebrews 9:14. Our conscience through the sacrifice of Jesus, the one offering of himself, cleans our conscience from dead works so that we serve the living God. We need to have our conscience decisively cleaned by Christ. Period. But when your conscience is cleaned by Christ, we're commanded to keep a good conscience. We're commanded to cultivate a good conscience, to live before God with a good conscience, to live before him in honesty and humility, to live before him in a way that pleases him consciously wanting to please him, not just going through our days and asking him to bless our thoughts, our ideas, our agenda, but wanting to live out his agenda. So how do we do that? How do we live before God with a good conscience? And this is so important because Hymenaeus and Alexander in our text rejected a good conscience and shipwrecked their faith. So this is not a small thing. How do, we listen, how do we cultivate a good conscience? I want to suggest three things. First, live near the cross. Live near the cross. Who read Galatians yesterday? Don't raise your hand. Galatians 6, verse 14. One of my favorites. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I need to live near the cross. If I don't, I either have inflated views of myself and think that I am good and I can, you know, live before God on my own merit or I'm devastated because I know my heart better than you know it. My heart. We need to bathe ourselves in the cross. We need to preach the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. We need to preach it to ourselves. Maybe in the mirror. So live near the cross, that's first. Second, make it your aim to please Christ in everything. Make it your aim to please him in everything. We don't please Christ in everything, but it should be our aim. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, whether we're away from the body or at home, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account 
2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. We read this earlier. No soldier in active duty entangles himself in civilian pursuits. Why? Because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Is that your aim? Is it your aim to please him? Number three, how do we keep a good conscience? How do we, how do we keep or cultivate a good conscience? Right, let me review. Live near the cross, make it your aim to please Christ in everything. Number three, repent quickly when you stumble. We have a plaque in our house, in our family room, the Grote family, right at the top, and then it, and then it goes through a bunch of statements, things that we want to be committed to do. And I will sit in our family room and read through that at times. And almost every time, this, these two words stand out to me, repent quickly. Repent quickly. When we stumble, when we fall, when we dishonor Christ, we want to be quick to turn back to him. Don't wait Don't hide in shame like Adam and Eve. Don't blame shift like Adam, blaming his wife Eve. Run to Christ in repentant faith and receive the ever-cleansing flow of his blood. Now, it's not just overtly sinful acts that can defile our conscience. It's not just blatant, disregard for God and doing our thing and sinning against him that can defile our conscience I believe it also happens when we are loose with God's truth Paul says that there was going to be in 2 Timothy 4 he says there's going to be a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know what that means? They'll gather around them people that tell them what they want to hear. And this too can defile the conscience. It absolutely can. Martin Luther famous said when he was told to recant of his works, right, he was, Martin Luther God, the Spirit of God revealed to him this glorious truth of justification by faith alone in Christ, right? And he began furiously writing and translating the Bible from German, or I'm sorry, from Greek and Hebrew into to German so that common people could read it. What a novel thought, right? And, uh, and he was brought before the higher-ups of the Roman Empire and told to recant or they would burn him at the stake And Martin Luther said, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Wow. If he burned, if he if he if he recanted, he would he would be denying the truth. He says, I can't, can't do it. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. J.C. Ryle said three things there are which men ought never to trifle with. A little poison, 
That's obvious. A little sin and a little false teaching. So Christians are called to fight and be soldiers and we're called to fight in a certain manner by holding on to the faith and a good conscience. We come to the last point I want to draw out and that is a warning. A warning issue to those who don't fight. To those who don't fight well. Verses 19 and 20 says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Two men are named by name who have shipwrecked their faith by rejecting a good conscience. I think it's specifically, it could be they rejected the faith and a good conscience, could be both of them. I think it's more directly pointing to they rejected a good conscience and their faith was shipwrecked. The word reject, rejected, can be used to speak of throwing something overboard a ship. They they threw the cargo of a good conscience overboard the ship. And the ship veered into the rocks and ran aground. And the ship began to sink. These two men dabbled in some questionable, speculative teaching. They loosened their grip on right and wrong. And before long, their ship was sinking. Do you notice the invasion of foreign teachings and practices into the church? You notice that over the years? It's not new. I remember 18 years ago, 20 years ago roughly, that a group of people that Alyssa and I were pretty connected with really got into this uh, spiritual warfare approach based on a book called Pigs in the Parlor. Anyone ever heard of that book? Where they would gather people in a circle and they said, everyone here, Christian, everyone has demons and we just got to figure out which ones, we got to cast them out. And uh, I remember being uneasy with that pretty early, but you know, I didn't, I was young and stupid. And, but um, that is different doctrine. Strange Doctrine something that's gained traction over the last eight or ten years is kind of an inner healing movement. Sometimes it goes by the, the name sozo. Sozo is a Greek word that speaks of salvation. And, and people have to go through this inner healing where they go into their past and, and deal with all of the things in their past, maybe even when they're in their mother's womb that it affects them to this day. And I just say that's a strange doctrine. That is not the truth. Something that's gained a lot of stand, I don't even know a whole lot about it, but I know a little bit, is something called the Enneagram. Maybe you've heard of that. Maybe you've even taken a test. Well, it comes from New Age roots. And it's exploded on the church. Some, Some churches are doing teaching series on the Enneagram. 
Well, these two men, right, they, Hymenaeus and Alexander were engaging in speculative, strange teaching. And their moral compass began to get off center or off north. And they shipwrecked their faith. We know from 2 Timothy that Hymenaeus was teaching a kind of over-realized eschatology that the resurrection had already happened. It matters that we hold to the faith. Do you notice the lustful desire in some, among some professing Christians in some churches to be just like the world? There was a very well-known pastor. If I said his name, many of you would probably know who it is over the last couple of years who uh, fell from grace. I mean, he was uh, just his private life of massive immorality came to the surface and he was booted from the, his, his role as pastor of the church. And I remember reading an article about this and there was an excerpt from a, an atheist or an agnostic, maybe an agnostic, maybe he called himself an agnostic. And he said something, I didn't find this quote, so it's, it, this is my paraphrase of what he said. He said, talking about this person, he said, I thought that the church was a place where the people of the world needed to change and become more like them. With this guy, it seemed like he wanted to become more like me. Cool, hip. Listen to what Paul says about these two men whom he names. With the authority of an apostle of the risen Christ, Paul said, I have handed them over to Satan. Wow. Paul is not messing around. Now, I think this speaks of excommunication. I think Paul did this in hope that they would learn. In fact, you even see that. Whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So I think the hope is that they would turn back from their error and from their sin. But if they did not, they most certainly would have been excluded from the kingdom. They rejected a good conscience and the ship of their faith was shipwrecked. Brothers and sisters, may this not be so among us. Amen? May this not be so among us. Fight the good fight, keeping faith, the faith, and a good conscience, and persevering in this to the end. And what awaits, for, what awaits those who fight the good fight all the way to the end? Well, thank, thankfully, we are, we are not with, we, we're not left wanting in knowledge of this. Just before Paul was beheaded, I mean, probably weeks before Paul was beheaded, he said to Timothy in his second letter this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What about Timothy? Right? This was 
This letter's to Timothy. Timothy, wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. What about Timothy? Well, he was faithful to the end as well. He was. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I strongly suggest at some point, read through that. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox was a man who began recording the stories of martyrs from the very, very earliest, Stephen being the first one in Acts chapter 7, all the way to the point in which he died. I think he died like in the 1600s, do you know? I'm not sure, somewhere around there. John Fox in Fox's Book of Martyrs records this about Timothy. Timothy, this is from the book, Timothy was the celebrated disciple of St. Paul and Bishop of Ephesus, where he zealously governed the church until A.D. 97. So 1 Timothy is written in 62, A.D. 62, 63, somewhere around there. So until 97, until he was an older man, he governed in Ephesus. And then it says this, at this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Katagagion, sorry, Katagagion, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their idolatry which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful a manner that he died of the bruises two days later. Did he fight the good fight? Absolutely. I think an all-important question that needs to be asked to you and I, I think we need to ask ourselves. Isaac Watts asked the question in a song The song is, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Has you ever heard that song? Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Which I would like to conclude my message with by reading the words of this song. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the tide? Excuse me, stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend for grace to help me on to God? Since I must fight if I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die, like Timothy and Paul. They'd view the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thine armies shine, in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. Are we soldiers of the cross? Are we soldiers of Christ? Are you? We want to be, right? Let's commit to that. Let's heed this word from the Holy Spirit. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Keeping the faith and a good conscience. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you.
for your word. Thank you that it always addresses us right where we are and it addresses us in the way that we need to be addressed. And Lord, I believe with all my heart because you are sovereign, because you are providentially working all things that you intended for this text today on July 4th, 2021 to be read and preached here to this congregation to stir us up, Father. And I pray that it would by the power of your spirit that you would encourage us, give us strength and courage to be soldiers of the cross, to be soldiers who are fighting with truth in a world that is under the power of the evil one who is a liar and deceiver. Help us to know the truth. Help us to walk in the truth. Help us to live out the truth more faithfully for your glory so that we can be not only active but diligent and faithful soldiers in your cause. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you stand, please? Second Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.